and welcome to the Word is Resistance. My name is Margaret Ernst, and I'm honored to be subbing in this week after taking a break from contributing to the podcast for a while. Thanks, Reverend Ann, for inviting me to share today. The Word is Resistance is a podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living and surviving, even thriving in the context of empire and tyranny, violence, and repression times in which we are living and which describe what America has been like for people of color for generations. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, that our role in showing up for liberation? As a project of showing up for racial justice and specifically surge faith, this podcast shares with white people about what we believe the word is in the lectionary texts that can help white people resist white supremacy and live into becoming the people and communities that God intended us to be. We welcome your feedback and really appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. You can leave us a comment on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages if you want to let us know how we're doing. I also want to mention that the music that you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the Freedom Movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. And the group that you hear singing is called No Enemies. They're a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are really grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. For those who haven't caught the episodes I've contributed to before, this is a little bit about who I am. I live as a settler on unceded Cherokee land in Middle Tennessee, which is now called Nashville. And I'm transparent about the fact that I'm actually pretty new about introducing the place I live in terms of the First Nations peoples who have the rights to these lands. If that's new for you too, I invite you to check out the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. They're an organization that sounds like a government agency, but actually they're a creatively named act of collective imagination aimed at sparking creative change. They have a toolkit on what it means to publicly acknowledge the traditional indigenous inhabitants of the land where you live, and also about how to link that naming with action and solidarity with indigenous communities today. You can find that guide at usdac.us slash native land and follow the hashtag honor native land. I'm not only a settler here on this continent, but I'm also a newcomer and a transplant to the South. I moved here three years ago to attend divinity school, which I finished just a couple weeks ago. I'll share a little bit more about what's going on here in Tennessee at this time as I reflect with you today on the scripture from Isaiah. The first a word on the seasons. In the seasons here outside my window, it's already pretty much high summer, and that means it's steaming and sunny during the day and in the afternoon. There's often nighttime thunderstorms. It's a season when out of nowhere, dark sheets move across the sky, bringing rains and flash floods just when you don't expect it, and lightning looks like it's breaking open the heavens. 
Meanwhile, in the church season, we're beginning the transition back into what is known as ordinary time. Liturgical time is a strange time zone, isn't it? I just finished working at a church for this past year, and this Sunday was actually one of the first Sundays I hadn't been to worship on a Sunday morning for a while. I completely forgot it was Pentecost, and as someone who has very gotten very nerdily into the liturgical year, I was like, damn, I miss Pentecost. But the thing is that Pentecost is not the climax or the end of the story. It's actually the beginning of the story of the church. In many traditions, the whole of ordinary time between now and Advent is technically called the season after Pentecost. The season when fiery tongues are still hot of the people who the Holy Spirit entered into in the upper room. And these tongues of fire from Pentecost remind me of the lips touched uh, of on Isaiah in this Sunday's text. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. What does it mean to read Isaiah in the season after Pentecost, the time that is the birth of the church, a time in which the church is still being messily birthed into the world today? Times in which young white men are shooting up their classmates while gun laws don't change a bit. The time when Palestinians are being shot on the border at Gaza for protesting in larger and larger numbers each week. And when white people in the U.S. are calling the police because black folks are having a barbecue or simply existing while black. Wonder what Isaiah would say if they had a YouTube channel. Because it's possible that the authors of many parts of Isaiah were not male. What would he or she or they be saying if they went viral? I want to also keep on remembering the emperor, the embers of that Pentecostal fire while we check out these coals that the angel brings to Isaiah's lips. And I want to ask what it means for Isaiah's lips to be burning. And what happens when we're on the receiving end of someone speaking a burning truth to or about us, especially critiques or anger about us as white people? Let's hear the text from Isaiah, starting with chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of God's robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above God, and each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a person of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, 
holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voices of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah's call story is such a fascinating and strange and even disturbing vision. It's truly a vision past my wildest imagination. And that's a characteristic of prophetic biblical literature, that imagination. Especially that part when one of the seraphs just flies right down, picks up hot coals from the altar, and touches them to Isaiah's lips. What's even more wild is that after the angel says, your sin and guilt is blotted out as he touches these coals to Isaiah's lips, that's when something changes in Isaiah. Isaiah says that favorite biblical trope, here I am, send me. I'll admit I have some questions about the physical brutality of this image. In some ways it sounds like the divine counsel is abusing Isaiah. I think that's something that we might have to think about and wrestle with more. I would love to hear what you think about that side of this story. But for now, I just want to work with it as a metaphor, and especially think about what images of fire tell us about the work of prophecy. After this moment of Isaiah's call, he scathingly critiques his society for economic injustice. This is Isaiah who unflinchingly calls out the powerful for depriving the poor of their rights and for withholding justice from the oppressed. This is Isaiah who goes off on religious leaders later in chapter 58, saying, stop with all your pretenses. Let the oppressed go free and break every chain. Isaiah's words had a lot of fire to them, and so it's not surprising that it starts like this with a vision of burning hot coal held up to the prophet's mouth. The truth can hurt to speak and hurt to hear. It can be really terrifying and painful and vulnerable to speak about what is wrong with the world around you and the pain that you are experiencing and what can and must be better. But if you've listened to this podcast from its multiple contributors, you'll probably guess that I'm going to discourage us from assuming that we can read ourselves into this text as white folks and reading ourselves into Isaiah's position as an emerging prophet. There are definitely might be ways that we resonate with times that we ourselves have been called to speak prophetically in our lives. We must use our voices prophetically. We must show up and rise up and make disruptions in the street. We must call out white supremacy in our institutions and organizations. 
our families, our churches. But also, as white people, we're a little too versed in seeing ourselves as the heroes and prophets. I think something that's harder for us to contend with is actually, as we're people working against racism, is what happens when we ourselves are called out by prophets. When the fires of prophetic rage are unleashed upon us, when they're unleashed upon us because we haven't been listening well enough, or because we've done harm, or haven't figured out ways to channel the power and privileges that we have bravely and boldly enough for racial justice and liberation. When people of color speak their truth to us, prophetic fire and truth-telling is not destructive. It's a big mistake when we receive truth-telling about how we need to do better as an attack. Because it's not an attack. It's necessary. In Nashville, over the past year and a half or so, I've been build, a part of building a coalition of congregations working to provide community defense and sanctuary and solidarity with people targeted by ICE. This past week was a bad week. This week, the governor of Tennessee let a bill become law that puts a ban on sanctuary cities, and it mandates local law enforcement and government agencies collaborate with ICE, and it gives them the resources to do that. Bills like this have also passed and become law in Texas and other places. And even though it doesn't go into effect until January 2019, the ripple effect from this law is already devastating to immigrant communities. Some undocumented folks are making plans to leave Tennessee to avoid deportation or simply because it's clear that they no longer feel welcome here. Some people know that they will stay but will have to go further into the shadows. Some folks are organizing strikes at their workplaces or marches or are throwing themselves into voter engagement even when they can't vote because they're dedicated to changing the people who sit in the seats that passed the bill, which was called HB 2315. As I listened to people impacted by the law this week, it was clear that it also meant a shift in our local organizing here in Nashville. It was clear that we needed to get even more firm and clear about what our congregations are doing to pledge to defend against these laws. As we know, religious communities don't exactly make decisions at a fast pace, whether it's about getting a new carpet or hiring a new choir director or offering sanctuary to somebody targeted by ICE or institutionalizing other forms of solidarity. Many of the congregations we've been working with have been on the fence with their commitments, and we've been okay with that, accepting where they were at, giving them things to do here and there, but not pushing them too hard to commit in the long haul. But with this bill becoming law, and with the Trump administration rolling back the status of hundreds of thousands of Hondurans recently too, 
a friend of mine who's an organizer in the Coptic refugee community said yesterday, we need to know who's with us and who's not. In other words, it was time, she said, to tell allies to piss or get off the pot. Last night, we had a dinner with members of the various congregations and also members who were being targeted by ICE. And over dinner, folks were sharing about how they were feeling. One of the members was detained by ICE while he was on his way to a court date with immigration. He was detained for a month in private detention center, first in Alabama and then in Louisiana, all while his wife back in Nashville was sick. His community and others supporting him rallied and got him out. But last night at dinner, after having spent a month in detention simply for the color of his skin, he was angry, so angry. And there were a lot of members of white churches in the room. And he said to them, he said to us, we mow your lawns. We do the work that make the places you live and work and worship impossible. The coals had touched his lips. And you know what? You could feel the fire in the room. To speak like he did about one's pain and one's rage is what it means to have lips burning with truth that must be said. And in this case, he wasn't directing his anger at any of the white folks in the room personally, but at what we represent. Reading this text again after that meeting made me think about how there's a couple of ways white people often react when prophetic rage is directed our way by people of color. We can recoil and get defensive or say that it's not justified. We can say that the person who is angry at us is crazy or dramatic, and we can gaslight them or try to move the blame. We can deny it, or we can say, we're trying the best we can. Can't there be a little bit of grace? I'll go back to grace a bit later in the podcast, but for now, let's just be reminded that these responses can do a lot of harm when harm has already been done. But we could also go in the other direction when people of color are rightfully angry at us as white people. We can hear the critique so hard that we don't have the resilience to come back and keep going, to keep doing the work. And I think this is partly because it's hard to perceive prophetic rage and coals on folks' lips as about calling us into our better selves. One way of saying this might be exorcism, another way of saying it might be medicine. I know I'm mixing a whole bunch of metaphors here, but I think we have worse problems than mixed metaphors right now. If we imagine Isaiah as a person of color impacted by systems of oppression and colonization, maybe a person of color in the global south or an indigenous person here on Turtle Island, we can see how he might have been calling out his own community or the whole system or powerful folks as colonizers and oppressors into a full accounting, into recognizing just how far we are from God's vision of the right ways to live. It can be easy to be conflict avoidant and feel like rage or contempt or even just basic critique put in our direction is inherently negative or overdramatic, 
Some people might even accuse it of being toxic. But the image in this strange and disturbing story is that these coals are actually empowering and and non-toxic. Isaiah's work as a prophet is to take the toxins out of his homeland's social system and collective body. The hot coals in Isaiah's call story may complexify our ideas of love, which truthfully just don't have enough fire in them. This is especially true in our white churches. White Christians' ideas of love is often overly sentimental and flat and simplified. It's associated more with middle-class values of politeness than biblical emotions of justice and right relations as the expression of God's love on earth. Isaiah is engaged not in the work of destruction when his lips feel like hot coals have burned them, and he is empowered to speak and call out his society and proclaim a different vision of justice. He's engaged in the work of love. This is why I want to make a connection between the hot coals on Isaiah's lips and being here now in the season after Pentecost as church. This is the season after Pentecost, the season of speaking across languages, figuring out ways to say what must be said and do what must be done. To mutually figure out how we can help each other survive, to mutually figure out words to use to express what we're experiencing, to express and receive anger, to express and receive care, to express and receive deep-bellied hope, to express and receive love that knows fire, that makes us all better. This is the season after Pentecost when the apostles tried to keep growing a movement that reinterpreted a tradition with prophets like Isaiah deep in its DNA. Whether it's the tongues on fire in the upper rim or the fire on the altar in Isaiah's vision, fire is indeed destructive and creative. But we can't romanticize it. When prophetic fire is directed our way for good reasons, because we are complicit, in perpetuating harm and violence, what will we do? Will we listen? Will we let ourselves be changed and stop the harm? Will we be awakened and shaken into grace at the core of our being? James Cohn talks about how grace is the possibility to struggle for freedom. And for white people, that means that Grace is the possibility of joining in the struggle of black folks and other people of color across the world. Now that struggle is actually how white folks themselves experience true salvation, not the false salvation of whiteness. That means grace doesn't always look like people feeling being nice to us or trying to care for our feelings. No, no, grace is an invitation to real relationship. It's an invitation to struggle 
alongside and even struggle with each other. Bell Hooks talks about love as constructive struggle and change. And that's what grace is also about and what love is when there is a relationship between grace and love and prophetic truth-telling even when your voice shakes. One encouragement I have for you today is to look for ways that you experience discomfort when a person of color or a community of color shares their anger. Where is a place that you need to receive someone's anger or critique or challenge in a way that transforms? If there's not a specific situation or person that comes to mind for, in, for this right now, maybe there's a reading or a poem or a piece of art that you've struggled to take in fully? Where can you put down your defenses to someone or something that you haven't been able to hear? And try to experience this instead of destruction as an act of love. Remember that someone has loved themselves enough to tell the truth to you and to trust and believe it can be held by you and by the universe try to notice what happens if you shift that paradigm. And instead of being afraid of those moments, we have to understand that this is part of how God moves and actually part of how we are more human together. And it means building up resilience as white folks to embrace and recognize when we are called out or when the organizations or churches we are part of are called out for our racism or our inaction. It's actually a process of becoming more fully alive and interdependent versions of ourselves in right relationships with others. Another action step is to learn about and take action against bills that are passing across the country that not only make it illegal to become a sanctuary city or town, but explicitly fund and militarize and deputize local government to carry out the work of detaining and deporting black and brown immigrants. Local, statewide, Laws, local and statewide laws passed in places like here in Tennessee are tests of what anti-immigrant groups with ties to white nationalist hate groups want to do across the country and in federal policy. Stay awake to the ways that immigrants and people of color are being abjectly criminalized and dehumanized in propaganda coming straight from the White House. The kind of propaganda that feeds and fuels the way that white folks rely on policing in our daily lives to seemingly protect us from who and what we are told to fear. For example, in the past couple of weeks, Trump has not only verbally called MS-13 gang members animals, but this has now been written on the White House website. And this is an intention not just to speak about MS-13, but to put an image in white people's minds that all Central Americans and people of color, immigrants, even folks fleeing from MS-13 themselves, are violent animals. This is the kind of propaganda that genocide is built on, and we have to be real about that. 
try to be proactive about what is coming down the pipe of your local and statewide legislative bodies because there are really a lot of terrible bills like HB 2315 being proposed throughout the country that will further criminalize people of color. Do everything you can to shut that shit down. I also invite you to look forward, to look upstream to what you can build that is visionary with your community. What candidates or local policies or visions of alternative solidarity economies are living into imagination, even in a hostile climate? Just as we learn about what our opposition is doing, we can also learn about how new visions are winning. Stacey Abrams just won in a state and in a political climate where many people thought it would never be possible for a black woman to successfully run for the governor of Georgia. Look to and learn from the people of Georgia, from people of color and immigrants and working class and poor people and LGBTQ folks in Georgia. We're putting out a vision of what it means to be from the deep south. That's actually not a new one. As Alan has talked about before on his podcast, resistance and prophetic imagination has been here in the south all along. But institutions, including the Democratic Party, have often not honored the power and vision of these communities. As white folks trying to figure out a new way of being white with the history that we have, part of what it means to be visionary is to listen deeply to the experiences and truth-telling, even when it's angry, of people of color, and to realize that prophetic work is, by its definition, destabilizing to those in power. And it should be, even when it's you and me. Thanks so much for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Next week's podcast will feature Will Green, who will be discussing the lectionary text for Sunday, June 3rd. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search for the word is resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references and credits and copyright information. And a big thanks to Max, who is our sound editor for this week. Thank you so much for bringing this podcast to life. Take care.